addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, which is how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Podcast. Happy to have you here with us. Today we have a very exciting guest in Dr. Chris Willard, somebody I met a few years ago. We had a few conversations and email exchanged, and he did drop into me that he had been in recovery for a long time, so I always wanted to talk to him about that, so I thought I'd get him here so you can hear about what he has to say. Dr. Chris Willard is a psychologist and educational consultant based in Boston. He specializes in mindfulness. He's been practicing meditation for over 20 years and has led hundreds of workshops around the world. He currently serves on the board of directors at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and is the president of the Mindfulness and Education Network. He's presented at TEDx conferences. He's been in the New York Times, Washington Post, Mindful.org, and other places. He also teaches at Harvard Medical School. And on a personal note, he enjoys traveling, hiking, cooking, reading, and writing, and being a father. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and we'll catch you soon. Thanks. All right, I'm very excited to talk with Chris Willard today, somebody I met for a brief period of time when I had a short-lived career at Mindful Schools, and uh, we got to be pretty close. So thanks for joining us today, Chris. Oh my gosh, it's so great to be here, Dave, and thank you so much for inviting me and also just for your service in doing this podcast, especially in in crazy times when it's hard to get to meetings. I I feel like this this is a gift for a lot of people who are isolated. So this is, thank you for your service. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, first question real quick. I just want to, because I don't know very much about you other than your professional career. What came first? Uh, was it, did, you, did you come into the 12-step rooms first or did you come into meditation first? How, how, what was your entry point into, into the combination of these two worlds? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd always been, well, I was an addict. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of us are, are searching for something spiritual underneath that. Um, or we're looking for some kind of peace, or we're looking for some kind of meaning. Um, and we tend to look in the wrong places before we start looking in the right places. And so even in the times that I was using, I was like, you know, kind of interested in Eastern philosophy, you know, trying to meditate, you know, despite, you know, being pretty squirmy about it and all of that thing. Um, and so, you know, like there, there was some introduction there, you know, reading a few kind of classic Dharma books from the nineties the and that kind of thing. Um, and even taking an MBSR course, which I missed a couple of the classes cause I was using and that kind of thing. So the, yeah. the seeds were kind of there, they were, they were kind of planted already, even before I, I, I came into the rooms, which also that took me a few times, um, to, to get down as well as getting, you know, living, living a more, you know, both, both recovery life and, and living a, a life, you know, trying to live a, a life in accordance with the Dharma. So you were you you were aware of both of those before you even got sober. Like that was my story too. Like I knew I was sitting at retreats at IMS when I was in my teenage years, and I was drinking and doing drinking and doing drugs. So right. when you They're probably not the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, back then it was like you know, twenty years ago I was the youngest guy on retreat, and, and right. it was, it, people thought I was um, 
once in a while, somebody would think that I was one of the retreatants kids walking around the retreat center. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, though. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, uh, you know, at what age uh, and when did you come in? When did you kind of really say, I really need to clean up? I really need to get it together. And do you think at the beginning, because this is a big question, I think, at the beginning of getting sober, which we know is no picnic, what do you think it was that helped you the most? Was it the support, the philosophy of, of the 12 steps or was it meditation or maybe a little bit of both even? You know, it was both. So, you know, early 20s, I like drop out of college, basically, and, you know, continuing to use. And, you know, and that's when I took that MBSR course, um, you know, meditated occasionally, did some reading, went to some meetings, you know, sober for a day, sober for two weeks, sober for a month back, you know, back relapsing again, never really sober. Um, And then, was got got had this experience. I was living in a halfway house. I got kicked out. Um, actually, not for using, although I was using, but I got caught um, doing some other stuff and, and just generally being a toxic influence was how they <laughs> described me in the boot. And um, and 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 basically, what happened was my parents were going on a Tiknat Han retreat, and again, I was twenty, twenty-one, something like that. And they basically dragged me on that retreat, and I. And, and, and what happened then was what was cool. This is 99 or something like that. Like I got there and there was like this paper plate, like stapled to the bulletin board. And it said like friends of bill meeting. Um, and, you know, if you've ever been on a, a big retreat, there often is like a friends of bill meeting. Cause a lot of us, you know, find, find meditation, you know, through the, the doorway of suffering and, and, and addiction being one of those doorways. Um, and I went to that and I met just people that I related to in a really different way and even just some of the stuff that that Ty, which is kind of the nickname folks give Thich Nhat Hanh, like what, what he was speaking about, like I actually had this, this really interesting insight, which was, you know, they're doing, he's talking about something with like interconnection, you know, sort of like, you know, taste the, you know, can you taste the cloud in your tea or something like that? And thinking about how interrelated we are. And I started actually thinking about like the consequence of my my using, not just for myself, how it affected my family and other people. And also how I was like, you know, I was like a, such a self-righteous little shit, you know, and, and, you know, kind of like I'm boycotting this and that and all these things. And I was realizing like, you know, here I am like a vegetarian and all this stuff and, you know, not doing any harm, but like thinking, you know, then about the violence actually behind drug use and the drug, the drug trade and the, the lives that just the drug trade had and the, the kinds of people that impacts the war on drugs beyond just the users. And, um, and that's actually a big part of what really kind of struck me sober, which sounds really different than the average kind of spiritual awakening of wanting to get sober from that. But that, that realization of interconnection actually was like a really big thing on the on on, on starting my journey um, right so it wasn't your classic rock bottom thing it was more of a perspective which is interesting right. that's one thing that i always find when you look at these two worlds this marriage of buddhism and recovery like what's the thing you're one of the first people who i get the sense of there was actually a dharma teaching in there and part of it probably had to do with some degree which is a big part of it in recovery for a lot of folks it's just sort of like maybe feeling guilty or feeling a little bit ashamed about like yeah. You know, so really kind of maybe getting in touch with a moral compass for the yes. first time and being like, yeah. holy shit, what I'm doing yeah. actually affects other people that that had not occurred to me before. Right, right. I mean, actually, like, you know, this kind of came up the other day. I've got kids now and I was watching The Lion King with my son the other day. And the last time I watched The Lion King was with my drug dealer and her son 23 years ago, <laughs> which is crazy, right? 
but like it was that kind of thing of like realizing like what am i doing you know and and you know and and these you know people i was buying drugs from were going to jail and you know probably that woman had her kid taken away at some point you know like just realizing that impact it had not just like upstream from me and the people i loved but like you know behind me too the, right. the, the role i was playing and and really ruining people's lives or communities and, and things like that. Um, so after that Thich Nhat Hanh retreat, did you, did you actually get sober after that? Or did you still have a couple more bouts? So here's what happened. So, so from there, so basically actually the, the, the deeper story is my parents basically picked me up from being homeless and sleeping in the park, <laughs> took me to Thich Nhat Hanh, And then I, I had a, a bed in a treatment facility. Oh, okay. You went, um, you went, so you I, went Dharma retreat to treatment center. Yeah, yeah. You which might is be the cool. only one ever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And um, and I, you know, I, I did that treatment program, threw myself into it, did all the like, you know, actually got a sponsor, actually worked the, you know, first five steps, you know, and then, you know, finished that. And then, you know, like up into, you know, starting my eighth and ninth steps, um, you know, and living out in, in Washington State where I was for just about a year afterwards. I guess it was 2000 because then, I had these sober friends who I then took a road trip around the country with, um, ending at the 2000 Minneapolis uh, World Convention um, was wow. where our road trip ended with, you know, 60,000 person AA meeting and the, you know, whatever dome, you know, baseball stadium in <laughs> Minneapolis. It was, it was pretty awesome. Um, and I, I remember that, you know, that at that at, at that uh, at the convention, like I remember. I, I had almost no money left in my bank account from the road trip. And, um, and I got to the ATM machine and someone had left their card in the ATM machine. And it was back when like the machine didn't shut off. It was just like, do you want to make another transaction? And oh. it really felt like a test from my higher power. Like I could have just been like, yeah, I'll take out $300 from this person's account. Right. And I just clicked like, no, you know, and like turned the card into, you know, whatever, like lost and found and like got out my own money right. and, you know, stayed sober that summer and then actually went back to college, relapsed and then got sober after that. So I had about a year, you know, then relapsed kind of on and off for another eight months or so and then got, got sober for good after that. And how um, much time do you have now? So 19 years. Nice. 20 in April, which That's is great. absolutely insane to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we always like to ask folks some similar questions because I think it's a big topic for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and part of it is, you know, of course, recovery, you know, Buddhism, these are big topics. But, you know, a lot of people come to the 12-step world. I do. Of course, nowadays, people are not doing that so much. So there's a, it's an interesting time for it. But was there anything that you felt, especially early on, that the 12 steps offered you, being in the 12-step community, 12-step world, that you found meditation or Dharma practice didn't do? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I think that the that the the Western mindfulness, Dharma, meditation community, whatever you want to call it, was not doing well in the 90s and early 2000s is starting to do better now is community, or as we say in the Dharma world, Sangha. And the, the thing that really helped me get sober in 12 steps was like the steps really helped. It's like a practical program and all that. But honestly, the community, like having friends I could like laugh with and make dumb jokes with and hang out with afterwards and, and talk about sobriety with, it's so much easier to find, you know, a, a meeting of like-minded alcoholics where we can shoot the shit and all of that than in, in addicts than it is to find um, a group of, 
of Dharma people, which I think is really too bad. It's tragic, um, actually, I think. And yeah. And so I think the Dharma world is doing a better job now, but 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 that's something I think that the 12 step communities really offered me. Yeah. And there's more somewhat more people my age. I mean again, I came in sober young, you know, 22, something like that. So I was often the youngest in the room. Um, you know, just as also often the youngest on a retreat. Um, but uh, you know, that was nice to meet other young people my age who had similar similar experiences to me who I could relate to rather than identify, as we say. Yeah, no, that's great. And so, so the flip side of that, of course, you've been a long time meditator, different practices, mindfulness, different Dharma stuff, doing some Thich Nhat Hanh stuff, it sounds like. At some point, did you recognize that there was some something that meditation or Dharma work was offering or doing for you that you weren't finding in the 12-step world? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it attracts you know, both of them attract, you know, the, the dented can aisle, right? You know, people coming with, you know, different kinds of baggage oftentimes. Um, but I, I think, you know, meeting just different kinds of people in the Dharma world, um, I think like a, a, a deeper, longer standing tradition, um, I think, you know, is, is, is really powerful. Um, I'm trying to think what are some of the other things I mean, I, you know, I just feel like they complement each other so well. And, and especially at the beginning, a lot of the stuff I was reading was was overlap. It was like Bill Alexander, you know, like Ordinary Recovery. And um, I'm blanking on his, his first book, um, you know, Mel Ash, The Zen of Recovery, you know, and then, you know, of course, like Kevin's Kevin Griffin's work came yeah. out and all that kind of thing. Um, but they really sewed those two things together for me. And I think just just as like you go to a meeting and you hear, you know, you like read, you know, live and let live or whatever the slogans on the wall, you know, over and over again, or you hear the promises over and over again for years, they sound different every time you hear them. Or you hear someone you love say say the same recovery slogan and it lands in a different way than someone you can't stand or your right. sponsor or something like that. And I think, you know, the language of so many spiritual traditions is the same. And I think the Dharma Buddhist world you know, that was a language that really resonated for me in a way that some of the more Christian stuff didn't quite resonate for me as much, especially in early recovery. It actually does now more for me. Like I've got a kind of broader, more open-mindedness to all kinds of spiritual traditions than I did. But back then, it's a lot of the same stuff, but the the, the Buddhist language really resonated for me somehow in a, in a way that um, some of the 12-step stuff didn't, or the 12-step concept in Dharma language, you know, about, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion or something like that just really made sense to me right. in a different way than maybe, you know, a phrase here in the big book or, or 12 and 12 didn't in quite the same way. No, that's great. And I think that, of course, the compliments between the two worlds are definitely greater than their differences, yeah. um, which is probably why it's become the thing that it's become. And it's interesting to hear you mention the Bill Alexander and some of those other ones, because this has been around for a while. This isn't actually right. that new. <laughs> but if you if you didn't read a book, if you weren't part of like a local Zen community that happened to have a sitting group, this stuff would never, never have occurred to you. The yeah. one thing I think that is, that is it's tricky for a lot of people because I've been in both worlds. I value both worlds. But when I started doing a lot of Buddhist recovery stuff, a lot, what I would start to get from people was the sort of 12-step complaints, the stuff they didn't like. And the one, <laughs> the one paradox that I actually don't even know if I've ever come to terms with is, of course, in AA, there's a, or 12 steps, there's a big recognition of a powerlessness. And yes. then, and then yeah. Buddhism's all about empowerment. So right. um, I'm just wondering, right. how, how do you negotiate those two ideas? Right. And, and I think to me, like what my spirituality is, is 
embracing that mystery, embracing that tension, embracing those things that are at the most, at the cognitive level are irreconcilable, but somehow at the spiritual level are reconcilable and we can hold both ends of all of that. I am both empowered now in my recovery and I am powerless and, and being able to hold both of those right. on, a, on a good day, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> um, I like that. So that's kind of, you know, what I feel like they've done for me. And I feel like spirituality to me is, is really just continuing to, to dive into and embrace the mystery. And in some ways it's not head on. It's like, how do we keep coming at it sideways? And as we say in, in 12 step, it's like the more will be revealed, you know, and, and in, in, in Dharma language, it's a little bit different of kind of like, you know, kind of keeping on, you know, going back and more wisdom from the same teachings just keeps emerging or, you know, we say peeling the onion sometimes in recovery. I have a friend that says, what about peeling an artichoke? That's yeah. much better than an onion. I like, I love that. Right. Um, she actually she's, is recovery and grew up in, uh, in, in, a, in a Buddhist community. Um, but like, but, but I think that, that to me is what it is. And some days, and being able to hold all of that, like wearing it all like a loose garment, you know, as we say, it's like, okay, I, I don't have to logic my way through this. In fact, that's when I start to fall off track is if I try to, you know, game this whole thing out with logic too much and just let it, let it be. Um, somehow. Well, you pointed to something great and I'm going to have to steal your answer next time I'm in the weeds <laughs> on this one, because, you know, I think you're pointing to something that's really core that we see in, um, in the Buddhist Dharma world, which is this beautiful concept and term equanimity. And yeah. I always think that the term equanimity is a little bit of a bummer because there's no, English equivalent, right? It's, it's sort right. of this Buddhist lexicon term. Sometimes you'll see it now like in a clinical textbook, it's showing up a little bit. But I think that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. It's actually the both and. Because of course, right. alcoholism, drug addiction is so black and white. Well, am I powerless or am I not powerless? <laughs> and you're saying actually I'm both. What the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm both. In some ways, I, you know, so I think that that's a really mm. important perspective. Is what it is. Yeah, right. You reconcile both of these. It's like, how do I reconcile them? And then, like, your brain just explodes, and you're at a new level of awaken, you know, of sobriety, of recovery, and of awakenment, awakenment, you know, yeah. whatever. But like, but that's kind of what it does to hold them both. Yeah. Sorry, I totally cut you off. No, that's all right. No, I think that's a, I think that's a good a good piece because I think in the word that we probably would use in the twelve step lexicon would be like acceptance, which doesn't right. really quite do the heavy lifting that yeah. equanimity does. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is, it is in some ways the serenity prayer too, of like knowing what you can change or, you know, the, you know, page three, three, nine or whatever it is now, you know, but like that whole concept of, you know, having some serenity about what, where we're powerless and where we're not powerless. Um, Yeah. It sounds like from what you're saying, you're, you're kind of, maybe you could call it good luck. It sounds like through the whole journey, it sounds like open-mindedness has not been your problem. (laughs) I'd say, yeah, I mean, it certainly was a first, <laughs> but, but that takes practice. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you can't, you know, it, it takes time, you know, and it, and it takes work um, and it takes life experience too. And life experience with like, you know, one of the things I feel like that 12 step that both have given me is like, oh, here's how I deal with the death of a friend, sober. Here's how I go through a really bad breakup, sober. Here's how I get my first job, sober. Here's how I go to my first holiday party. So, but like, and you start to accrue that over time. Um, and I think that starts to give us, you know, some, some faith and, and hope and, and I think some equanimity too, where then we can, we, you know, we only learn by doing us alcoholics. Right. And even then it's like, you got to burn your hand 10 times on the hot stove, but it's like, but at some point that becomes like faith that if I, okay, open-mindedness worked for me the last 10 times, why don't I try that again this time? 
And that's when, when hope, I think, crystallizes into faith is how I see it. Faith in a higher power, maybe for some people, faith in the Dharma, maybe for some of us, faith in the 12-step program or in community for others of us. But that's when the hope that this will work becomes the faith that it will work. And it's no longer a leap of faith. It's just like, put one foot in front of the next. And then it kind of is probably going to work out. And if it doesn't work out, I can still handle it. Right. Um, yeah, that's yeah. a tricky term, I think, that word faith, because it's so associated with the belief system. Right. But you have right. to have at least enough of confidence or, belie- or, or faith in a belief system to actually try to do what they're right. asking you to do. So it's that right. faith and the willingness and that and, and, and really the effort, uh, you yeah. know, which, which is one thing I've always loved about uh, the Buddhist structure is the emphasis on effort and the ethical dimensions of effort and the fact that this is all about not knowing something. It's about knowing how to do something. Exactly. And a friend of mine who's a monk was, he, I was like, I, I wrote this book about the paramis and, and I was talking about right effort. And I was like, so what does that mean? Like lots of effort? And he's like, no, it does not mean lots of effort. It means the right effort. And I was like, oh, he's like, you know, he's like, it's like a, like a guitar string. It's like yeah. not too tight, not too loose. It's the right effort to meet the moment where it is. So you're not kind of like grinding your gears or, or overthinking it. How my power wants to empower, you know, it's like, can you make that right amount of effort to, to be present with, with what is, and then things kind of start to happen in this way that I don't think we humans entirely have words for. No, I, no, we don't. And I think that there's also, I've been, hot on this right effort teaching for a long time because I used to think the same thing. Okay, well, just, you know, just like it's just plow through, you know, to me, to me, that just like it's a Buddhist version of white knuckling. Like that's not (laughs) right, right, totally. We're going to meditate the shit out of this shit. But when you look at what it's talking about, of course, it's trying to to overcome destructive, unwholesome forces in the mind and cultivate constructive, wholesome forces in the mind. So a lot of it is actually more of an ethical, I think, game than it is actually a kind of strength game, which I think for a lot of us have a hard time getting our heads around that one. Absolutely. And they're, they're both in act your way into a new way of thinking. Like that's, that's in both of those worlds very much. Absolutely. Like, that's what karma is. Yeah. <laughs> you act your way into a new way of thinking and believing and then acting in the future. And that's also what neuroscience and neuroplasticity is. Yeah. And it's also what, you know, AA is. I mean, it's actually like, I really see those as all just different, different languages for the same concept. No, that's um, awesome. I totally agree. Karma, neuroplasticity or call it, you know, taking the doing the next right thing you know um yeah yeah. Uh, yeah i want i want to fast forward a little bit and kind of talk about you're one of these interesting characters for me because i know a lot of dudes who are you know in recovery and into meditation and they usually end up doing something like i do some sort of quasi you know addiction recovery dharma thing but you on the other hand have kind of at what point did you start to move into more of a professional capacity? Because I know that you work in you work in universities, you work in a secular sense, mm-hmm. you work with kids, you 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 sort of have a more of a clinical game on it. Um, yeah. So when I met you and we when we talked the first time and you told me your recovery, I was of course totally stoked. But then I was like, oh, it's interesting that uh, usually. So you you kind of have this interesting trajectory. When did you start? You know, looking at this more from a professional work and how and how you've gotten into doing what you do now. When did that transition occur? Yeah, you know, I, I I graduated and we got sober like basically the same day from college way back when, did kind of nothing for a while or a bunch of different stuff, you know, like worked for an artist and traveled a little bit and, you know, worked at a you know mental health clinic and worked um yeah, doing construction, restaurants, uh and uh and then was a teacher for a year and then 
you know, I wanted to have recovery be a part of my life. And I went back to school to do clinical psych. Um, and I, I thought I would do mostly work with addicts. And, and it kind of surprised me that my path took me in some different directions. And I think some of that was due to being open, right. <laughs> you know, like what's, what's in front of me, how can I make the best of what's in front of me? I, I, I didn't actually want to work with kids. Um, and I ended up doing that probably because I was just in like, I was in this internship that was actually in graduate school it was a total disaster. The guy was like committing Medicare fraud they had to take us out of the internship. And then like, they put me in like a school system and I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And, and then just trying to figure out where does mindfulness fit in, in this world? So a lot of my work these days is, you know, if people know me is, is through this sort of like mindfulness in kids, mindfulness in teens thing. Um, and that's interesting to me. And I really like working with young people more and more. I like working with like young adults more than like teenagers and, and kids, although, you know, that's, that's fun and that's fine. Um, so it's, yeah, I kind of just fell into it <laughs> and I'm sort of trying to move out of that in some ways and do a little bit more like, um, you know, like, like corporate oriented work, working with adults. Um, like I just read Fleet Mall's book, which is really cool. It's actually, I don't know if have you checked that out, Radical Responsibility. I don't know his book, but I know Fleet Mall pretty well. He's been around for a while. He's done a lot of stuff yeah. uh, with prisons and he's done some pretty righteous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just really interesting guy you know, like doing, I'm working on a book now that kind of came out of the pandemic of like resilience and post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. you know, and that's really kind of more for, for grownups. And it's, it's just all mindfulness stuff. Well, it's <laughs> funny you say about kids and teens, cause I, I, I never worked with kids, but I worked with teens for a long time. Yeah. And I like to tell people there's a, there's a, there's a window for how long one can tolerate working with the American teenager, you know, like, <laughs> I think you're totally onto something. Yeah. you know, it's like, you know, it's maybe a, a, there's a period of time. And if you've been doing it for longer, it kind of starts to backfire. But me and my right. wife, Shannon, were talking about this earlier about, uh, cause we've been putting together these programs and this Buddhist recovery yeah. course and something that, the Dalai Lama was talking about about addiction, which I thought was interesting. And his huh. his whole emphasis was on prevention. Yeah, and you know, I yeah. think I think we, one could argue that working with teenagers and teaching them self awareness and teaching them mindfulness and teaching them emotional intelligence is probably right. great addiction prevention. Yeah, yeah, and that to me is actually you know like I don't talk about my recovery in every every setting. I go and do professional workshops all over the place, or I used to, and I do them online. But like, you know, I did this, you know, kind of prevention organization in, in like Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. And, you know, and, and it felt so wonderful and so natural to be sharing both my own recovery experience and then why, why, you know, I got interested in mindfulness and meditation and these other kind of, you know, spiritual or secular paths that really do help kids um, and young people be more resilient. Because I really do feel like if I'd had more of that, I think I would have had a different you know, maybe I still would have ended up an addict. Maybe it would have taken me longer to get sober. Who knows? But I think there would have been would have been a little bit more there. And so it feels like such a joy to be able to then share it in that way. And it's helpful that you remind me of that because it actually brings more joy into it for right. me. Right, no, totally. Um, you know, like I work a lot with um, you know, Calmer Choice, a great group on Cape Cod. And that really started as a, as a mindfulness and, and teen organization to build resilience for addiction because the opiate crisis is so bad down on the Cape. Right. Um, and so many people, as, as I'm sure you know, and some of them you don't know, and some I know and some I don't know, right? Also, like in these worlds are, are a lot of us in recovery. Um, and, uh, and I do really feel like giving kids these skills and strengths you know, my hope is that they can be more resilient. So they're not just, 
falling into addiction, falling into kind of nihilism and, you know, and, and the broad range of what addiction can mean, you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. Just being more alive and engaged in the world. Yeah. That reminds me that you, that you do have this, you know, I have this sort of clinical training. I'm, I'm sort of one of these people who's trained in everything and credentialed in nothing because I, <laughs> because I'm too lazy to finish fucking figuring out the forms, but you know, you, you have a lot of clinical background. Is there, you know, working in the, you know, there's sort of Dharma work and there's recovery and there's clinical stuff. They're all similar. But is there anything that you find that you've learned in your clinical work and your understanding of, of sort of the mind and human relationships in that that you have found to be very helpful that you haven't that you didn't necessarily see in the 12 steps or in Dharma? Yeah, one of the things that I, I just feel so lucky is that the the interest in like the, the technology around um, brain science, you know, has really started in the last 20 years to explode, you know, and that that intersected with the interest in mindfulness, meditation, contemplative practice and researching those things. And so that's actually like a really cool, cool thing that I feel like I, I've been able to bring in when I'm doing more of my kind of professional hat stuff of like, here's what's going on, you know, in your brain when you're in your addicted and when you're recovering and here's what's going on, you know, with some of these contemplative practices that's changing you and actually also changing the people around you, um, you know, with, with your behaviors and, and things like that. So that's something that I, I, I feel really lucky that I did get that degree and have pursued you know, kind of more training just around the neuroscience and stuff, because that's also like the language that people speak, right? You know, some people speak a spiritual language, but increasingly, you know, people are, are, are more secular are turning away from their, you know, childhood, spiritual or religious traditions. And that's, that's good and bad, you know, or it's neither good or bad, you know, as you might say in Buddhism, um, you know, but what do we replace it with is what's important. You know, maybe we don't say grace, but can we still practice gratitude? Right. You know, maybe we don't pray, but can we still set intentions for ourselves? And the research really backs up gratitude, intention setting, mindfulness. You know, like I'm not right. sitting quietly in church like I was as a kid, but I sit quietly on my cushion sometimes these days, honestly, with kids. But like, you know, that's that's the goal anyway. And I think that's actually really cool is seeing seeing the science come in because it gives gives people more faith, you know, to go back to that word, um, that, that like, oh, maybe this is something that can do something for me. Well, that's why I credit, you know, um, you know, we, if you go back to the 60s, you had sort of your Jacks and your Josephs and all your people who went Buddhist meditation. But then you had yeah. like your Richard Davidson's and your Daniel Goldman's who who were at those same Goenka retreats in the late 60s right. who went <laughs> who went the science route. And, and yeah. I think that one thing that I always uh, – a page that I've always taken out of the Buddhist literature is really the Buddha used to always say that when you're teaching the Dharma, you have to speak in the language of the people that are in front of you. Like he said that that's in there, you know, and I learned that because I was trained in, when I was doing all my work in Nashville, I was doing treatment centers, but I was doing Dharma groups and, and I, and I was in prisons and I was in all these places. I had to like, be like, what's the language I can use here? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the advantage of science now, because now it's like more like people who are going to be more liberal or more open-minded, you know, they're, they're going to, if science says it so, right. Then they're going to probably listen to your thing. Now, if you (laughs) gave them your big talk on interdependence, right. They'd be like, they'd be like, Oh, this fucking guy's a kook. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. That's not going to fly at MIT (laughs) where I was a couple of weeks ago. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But if you're talking about science and neuroscience and brain and image scanning, which is actually much more boring, really, but that's how you, (laughs) you know, but you're still talking about the same thing. Right. 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 Totally. Totally. Yeah. 
And we do have to like translate the language. And then of course, like actually I, I'm curious what you think about this. You know, one of the things I'm seeing with a lot of my my Buddhist mentors and meditation mentors is the, you know, I mean this 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 is controversial, but but is the growing interest in psychedelics. And I right. think that's the like weird, weird fucking thing for those of us in recovery, because I'm having all these mentors who are now like you know, who were doing research on meditation for 20 years. Now they're like doing research on psilocybin. Yeah. And no, I, like, I, Guys, I, you're killing me here. No, I, I hear you. That's interesting you bring that up because I, you know, I, I have mixed feelings, of course. And of course, I feel like I, I have a bias. And my bias yeah. is no drugs and alcohol, period, right. for me. And also, right. you know, right. if you really want to ascribe to the Buddhist structure, Clearly, yeah. the fifth precept is you know. So you know, take for what you will. But, right. But also, I I I I also know actually four people that I know very well who had long term recovery, like five years or more, who went uh -huh. to South America, did the ayahuasca, and all four of them came back and relapsed like crazy. No shit. Yeah, that's like, actually really helpful for me because that's like the one thing where my brain gets going, and I'm like. <laughs> that's helpful thank you yeah. i needed to hear that <laughs> and and there's people who don't have addiction who go and have these experiences i feel like i would put this and this is just me i'm sure there's evidence to suggest that there's some help to it but you know even ramdas said he said you know lsd opens the door but that's all it does i feel right. like it's the new spiritual bypass i think so too and like i kept opening the door with lsd 20 some years ago you know and probably so did you like <laughs> that's how we ended up where we are right <laughs> like, <laughs> but why somebody, you know, I feel like it's just, it's a spiritual bypass, especially people have been sitting 20, 25 years. Right. And now they're going to trip ayahuasca. It's like, you know, I, you know, to, you know, to each his own. But I think that, um, you know, I think if you're trying to, and of course now I would lean to the clinical side. I think whatever you're trying to address in your ayahuasca ceremony could probably be addressed with like an EMDR therapist. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And so many of these folks, I think also, like a lot of the research is on mortality, end of life, mean, you know, like that kind of shit that's like, you know, like, well, three heavenly messengers for one thing, but it's also like that generation that's now doing that research is like, maybe they're wanting their one last shot at it or something. You right. know? <laughs> know. Well, also, there's this other thing that, that my trauma therapist speaks about that originated in P and um, it originated in Vietnam vets now that they're getting uh -huh. to be that time in life. And it's just actually this phenomenon, yeah. phenomenon called late onset PTSD. Oh, interesting. And so when wow. people start to realize they're nearing death, like in a big way, like, you know, mid sixties, they start, death is there. Right. Any unaddressed PTSD that they might've dealt with or repressed or whatever really, really comes back on fire. Yeah. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, late onset, you know, it, so that, that's where that, that's where that data came from. But then right. I even noticed in my life, if something like, you know, I remember, you know, eight years ago, I had to put down one of my pipples, one of my dogs I had for 17 years. Yeah. And I did, you know, the whole thing, euthanization at the vet with the shot, the oh. whole, and I wasn't upset for about two weeks, about two weeks later, I had this major meltdown. It took two weeks for me uh, right. to, to get that experience. And I think that maybe people are running to the ayahuasca. Yeah. Um, you know, in that same way of, of thinking it's going in, you know, it's going to sort something out for me that I'm unable to sort out on my own. And right. just that way of thinking to me is a little bit dangerous. 
Totally, totally. And I think that generation too, like, where do we start and where do we end? You know, like my, you know, their their journey began in their teens and 20s trying that, you know, and then, you know, wanting to go back to it in some ways, probably to relive their youth a little bit, you know, to get to get therapisty about it. But that's so interesting about the late onset PTSD and, and spiritual bypass too, you know, like I've been struggling, my mom's been very ill. And I keep being like, Am I in denial or am I just like rocking the equanimity? Cause I'm not feeling that much, right. <laughs> it's like, but I think it's just gonna, it's gonna hit me when it hits me. It'll you know? hit you when it hits you. And not trying to, you know, um, you know, stuff it down either. Um, yeah. Well, that's the other thing too, that I, you know, ha- having watched the Buddhist recovery world emerge and go through its chaotic shifts, feeling some responsibility about getting back in the mix is one of the things that's always been problematic for me. And, and people like Stephen Batchelor have really pointed this out. And it's kind of the new the new trend in Dharma is this whole, you know, the, the path that leads to the end of suffering. Right. Like that, right. that there's an end of dukkha. Now, I got right. 50 Buddhist books on front of me in front of the shelf and every single Buddhist book in front of me tells me that I'm going to be able to end dukkha. Now, right. if you look right. at if you look right. in the canon, if you look at what the Buddha is saying, actually, he's saying no. There's no end of dukkha. In fact, you and you used the word a couple of times a while ago, embrace. Right. It's, we have to yeah. embrace life, and I know that for me, my addiction and even all my addiction now, even my my eating and all the ways in which I try to control the way I feel. Yeah. Um. The problem with that is, is my addiction is trying to end some sort of suffering for me, and so a lot of people who love that idea of ending suffering, who doesn't like that idea? They, they go to Buddhism and they, and they try to, they try to think that that's going to be the thing that's going to end it for us. And, and the good news is whether you think that or not, the practices are all the same, but I think that this, the path that leads to the end of suffering once and for all, I I think is really dangerous. I don't think it's actually what the Buddha was saying. Uh, I know it's insanely controversial, but I don't know if you've come into that stuff at all a little bit or how you hold that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in, you know, this, this as a kind of like, you know, that, you know, there's some ways that the Buddha and, you know, then, you know, the later teachers consolidated the teachings and and made it like literal, but I think he was speaking metaphorically or in a, you know, kind of, um, what's the word, um, you know, not Oracle, I, I can't think of the word right now. Um, and, and I think, and, and to, to recovery too, it's like, are we ever recovered you know, it's like, like it's in the past tense, like once in the, in the, in the, in the literature and I, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, but for the most part, it's like, no, this is, this is a process and recovering is a present tense thing. You know, right. we are always recovering, <laughs> you know, we're always in the present. We're never, we're never done. Um, you know, for some of us, the desire is lifted, but I don't know if it's lifted forever. Just like, I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, there's like the debate, you know, you know, he, he, you know, did, did Mara run away and never come back or did Mara keep coming back? You know, did temptation keep coming back? Is enlightenment a switch, you know, or is it like, you know, always kind of back and forth? And I'm much more on the recovery side of it, which is like, no, you're never fully recovered and you're never fully enlightened. And that's it. From then on, you're just enlightened. It's like, no, you know, temptation still arises. It's a daily it's a daily practice in both traditions. Um, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think that's why I think Buddhist is Buddhist. The Buddhist framework is much more a psychology. Yes. Yeah. Of experience Absolutely. than right. it is. It's not a dogma. It's not a belief system. It's, it, 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 you know, if you put all the religions on the world stage, Buddhism is a very awkward character on that stage. Yeah. And yeah. one of the reasons why I've always been drawn towards, you know, more modern psychology and, and, uh, clinical work is that they're, uh, 
it seems to be what they're saying is much more in line with what the early Buddhist tradition is saying is that this is an yeah. ongoing, uh, you know, and I think about this word evolution that I, I'm in this recovery. I'm in this Dharma evolution where, you know, right. you know, species don't stop evolving. Right. You right. Know, just, just like, like you're, our you're brains fully... don't stop rewiring. I mean, like all of that is true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the neuroscience is saying, you know, exactly the same thing. So I feel I feel comforted in my pushback on the Buddhist tradition when the scientists are like, yeah, this <laughs> this is an ongoing game. Yeah. 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 And and it is with, you know, with with the other addictions that that flare up for all of us. I think it's pretty universal. It's like not just like we get sober and then the alcohol battle is over. It's like plenty other, you know, ones come up for most of yeah, us. Yeah, get rid of the alcohol. Here comes the sugar and the cell phone and the <laughs> Right. You know, totally. Let's look at Bill. You know, he struggled with like women. He also went back and was doing LSD, trying to find more meaning and stuff like that too, right? I mean, like he was a pretty unsettled guy, as I understand it, for the rest of his days, you know, whereas as Bob maybe actually found some more serenity or equanimity or something like that. Um, so they're they're interesting kind of saints in in that tradition and, uh, you know, are kind of kind of gods in that tradition of like, you know, the different, the different paths we can, we can take to. Yeah. Like they say, even gone, even Gandhi was not a great dad. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 I had had another question for you that I was talking to my friend, George Haas yesterday, who, who, who also operates in the same world who's most of his focus has been on attachment theory. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that he's actually doing a project with a monk, um, a a Thai forest monk who, um, is teaching George sort of their progress of insight. And they wanted George to teach them some attachment theory stuff because it turns out all the senior monks at the monastery are dismissive in their attachment style. (laughs) Right. 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 And so, um, and we talked about this back to equanimity a little bit, I think is, is that equanimity oftentimes looks like indifference. It often looks it often looks as though I'm sort of above it all, but it's not that I'm above it all. It's that I'm totally repressed and I just don't give a shit. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or desperately trying to appear to not give a shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. So yeah. I think I think that the more <sighs> I know that for me, I'm curious to see what you think. That the longer I've been in this game, I feel like I feel more, not yeah. less. Yeah. And I feel more of everything. I don't feel just yeah. more better. I feel more joy. Right. I also feel more sadness. I also feel, I think that interconnectedness or the compassion of the shared humanity on some level makes things a little bit harder, I think, sometimes. Right. Well, both of them, I think, you know, both both traditions, I think, kind of, you know, it's like, you know, in the 12-step world, it's sort of like, you know, life doesn't get better. We get better at living it. You know? Yeah, it gets, right. It gets harder, but our skill set levels up, too, if we're working the program. And I think the same is true in, in, in Buddhism. And the same is definitely true in neuroscience. Like, the more you work out your brain, the more resilient it becomes. And the, the quieter your, you know, like amygdala response and, you know, your your, your flip-out response becomes and all that. Um but I do feel like I, I I feel more, I notice more, and whether that's aging, whether that's sobriety, whether that's dharma, I don't know. But I also feel like I am more, mostly more able to handle it um, at the same time. And I do think that's tools of the program, tools of reco- tools of um, dharma, you know, at the same time, and having a network of people um, and faith, you know, whatever that word means right. too. But but it is there is more of everything, you know. It's like not only is there a mortgage and a wife and a job and a reputation and, uh, you know, kids to care for, but there's also, 
you know, that includes with it 10,000 more jar- joys and 10,000 more sorrows, or I was about to say 10,000 more jaros. Maybe that's what it is, <laughs> but it's like, but, but like all those things we keep getting more and more, but hopefully we get, you know, 10,000 and one more skills right. or enough faith to know that the ones that we have can, can help us through, you know, whether we think, you know, I'm strong enough to do this, my Buddha nature is, or whether it's, you know, 12 step, you know, God's never going to give you anything you can't handle. Um, you know, I think all of those things are, are well, true. I think that what under, underpins all of that is really what you're talking about is you have to have some skills. Right. You know, even Richard Davidson's well-being, you know, talks about well-being being actually a <clears throat> skill. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, we, we pick up all these different skills. And this is why I think that so much of the work is actually in – so much of the effort is in the skill building because, yeah. uh, you know, the big difference between knowing knowing that and knowing how. Like I mm-hmm. knew that I was an alcoholic, right? For ten years before I got sober, right. but knowing that didn't <laughs> help me at all. Yeah, yeah, and and then it becomes the what's the action, what's the right effort, the right action <laughs> that we take. Right. Yeah, yeah, that brings us to where where we want to be or closer to where we want to be because I think we both agree we never get to entirely where we want to be, right? But we get we get closer to it and get closer to 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 spiritual alignment or you know some kind of resonance with the universe or whatever it might be that's yeah. right so uh lastly what what are you know you've been in the covid with all of us here for a while there is it what is going on for you in the next year or what are you working or what are you sort of excited about uh in in, in your world and your work if you do work in all these very unique places i mean i know you probably don't think that because you're you <laughs> but from the outside i'm like this guy is everywhere it, what is it that you're currently working on and thinking about that you're excited about yeah, and and I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and in some ways, luck is another word for privilege. I think sometimes yeah. too, um, but I do feel like you know I, I've got a lot of irons in the fire. I'm still doing a lot of you know kind of like trainings around you know like kids and and teenagers and resilience. Um, you know, I you know I'm doing some more online courses and stuff like that coming up. Um, you know, and I've got you know like a, a few different books I'm working on. I've got a few kids books that are fun. And I've got, you know, um, like a, an adult book actually about post-traumatic growth and resilience. Um, and, and so much of it is just Dharma stuff and just recovery stuff, you know, just like slightly differently repackaged to be entirely honest. But it's like that's it's all the same good stuff. Um, so I'm really excited about that. That's due in a couple months. And I've been researching away on that. And then like writing goofy kids books. I wrote a I want this to become an AA slogan. I, a friend and I wrote a book called Feelings Are Like Farts. <laughs> <laughs> like, because they're big, because awesome. they're small, but they always pass, right? Impermanence, you know. So, yeah. you know, like everything in between, and then, you know, corporate gigs and work with Google. I mean, it's just like, a, you know, and hopefully someday back to travel travels. No, um, I know. I, I miss it. And I love it. I mean, I have kids too. So, I mean, I'm sure for you, I mean, I haven't, you know, being, being, being with the family and being with, with my, I have a two year old. So being so close to the kids the last year has been, has been a total blessing. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to traveling again, although I'm a little bit reluctant to um, uh, say yes to everything. Right, right, right. And it's been amazing to not travel. Like you said, I mean, it's been a challenge to be with the family, but it's like, man, it's great. I'm home for dinner every night. I wake up for breakfast with the kids every day and it's it's wonderful. And I feel closer to them than than I ever would have had this not happened. And that's a real gift that I've got a job that's flexible enough that I can and are you be in- remote and be around and, and all of that and just jump online and, and do my thing. Where are you? Are you in Cambridge? Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. You're in my old stomping grounds. Exactly. If I go yeah. to Cambridge, I get real thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, it's great to have you. It's great to talk to you about this. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'll put some in the liner notes. I'll put some links to some of the stuff that you do so people can connect with you uh, outside of this yeah. if they wish. Great. Thank you so much, Dave. Stay safe. And uh, we're thinking about a trip to Colorado this summer. So maybe we'll work oh, you Yeah, up. let's do it. It'd be awesome. Thank you.